I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. That's, yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I want to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to leave it here. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down Twelfthfield, and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you surely, man? It's the Irish Times second captain's football podcast with Owen and Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi, Owen. How are you? I'm um, pretty good. The burning question I want to put to you, well, it's not really for you. It's for the greatest football in the world. The burning question in European football after the Champions League week we've seen, Ken, is when will Leo Messi put the foot down on Luis Suarez? <laughs> this nonsense has gone on far enough. He's stealing the show a little bit. Yeah. Okay, sure, Messi was amazing against Man City in the home leg, but who was it that really won that tie from away from home? See, Suarez keeps doing this. You know, he goes, it's once he's away from the camp now, he goes and he scores two goals away to Manchester City, he scores two goals in Paris. You know, it's as though he feels almost when he's on the road, he can kind of strut his stuff a little bit and, and dominate and make make these, you know, people on the road think feel as though, wait, hang on, Luis Suarez looks like he's maybe one of Barcelona's main players now. Actually, this guy might be one of the might be the best player in the world right now. <laughs> I mean, at the new camp, it's a little a little more difficult. That's that's more Leo Messi's turf there. Yeah, uh, he's got a certain connection with those supporters, and while they'll enjoy the football of Neymar and Suarez, Suarez yeah. they're not going to revere him in the way that they do Messi. It's just amazing uh, what Suarez is doing. Although you know he he'd been doing this for Liverpool on a pretty consistent basis. It's just that. Liverpool don't get to play in the Champions League quarterfinals these days. They don't get to play in these kind of massive European ties. And these are the matches. This is why a player like Suarez wants to, ultimately wanted to go to Barcelona. Well, two reasons. His wife's family lived there, and I think that was always kind of important to him. But the uh, fact of actually getting to go and play for the biggest team in the biggest game means that when you actually do the kind of thing that he was doing, for instance, against Norwich City, <laughs> he was doing this against Norwich City. It's not as though this was a this kind of um, magic has come out of the blue for him. It's just that this is the you do it in a game like this. This is where the whole world pays you respect. Nobody says, oh, well, it's only PSG. Oh, well, it's only David Luiz. I suppose they do criticize David Luiz. David Luiz is not as good... When Thiago Silva is not there, Thiago Silva got injured early in this game, and that's when the problems really started for for PSG. Richie Sadler will be in studio for our Thursday afternoon chat today, and Raphael Honigstein on a big week in German football. Jurgen Klopp gone, or will we will be gone at the end of the season, possibly to the Premier League, and Bayern Munich may be gone from the Champions League after their result last night. And we'll start the report on Sport Ken with the with the Champions League. That's the uh, that's where we start. I mean, Bayern losing three one is just a, a really incredible result at this stage. I mean, it's not incredible that Porto, um, you know, our Porto, our team to be taken seriously. They always have talented players. Although in this case, I was surprised to see Ricardo Quaresma being the decisive player in the tie. Well, Jackson Martinez, you could argue, just as important. But Ricardo Quaresma, you know, a guy who has been sort of flitting around the periphery, failing to make an impact at a series of big clubs, um, is the man who ultimately um, shoots down Bayern Munich. Now, Bayern could always still get into this. They could always still go through. You know, 2-0 victory is not an impossibility for them. But 
I wouldn't be backing them. I would not be backing them at this stage. This, this, the disturbing thing about this is, it's once again this kind of uh, what Arsene Wenger coined the, the phrase "sterile domination," when Arsenal were beaten by Barcelona that time. Um, Pep Guardiola's Barcelona, obviously. Um, the phenomenon by which by which a team seems to completely control the game, but do, somehow doesn't. Sixty nine percent possession for Bayern and three shots on target equals not really having troubled Porto all that much. Uh, and this was in a game, remember, where they were they were down for they were two 0 down with eighty minutes still to play. So that at that point they knew, oh, hang on, we're going to have to we, we need to score a couple of goals here, and they just couldn't do it. Mm. Um, they managed to get the one, but then conceded another. So. They were unable to, they were unable to really impose themselves uh, in a way which is going to worry Guardiola and is going to cause him big problems. You know, this is the, this is a guy who's brought in to win the Champions League every year. <laughs> to win the you know, this is the team that's already been getting to the final and winning the Champions League. So Guardiola's brought in to make this team even better, and there have been times when it's when it's looked as though he has done that. And obviously, when you look at their dominance in the league, it's it's ridiculous. You know, it's the league is almost a non-event, and it's it's like he doesn't get any credit for that anymore. You know, it's it's the kind of paradox of his situation. The dominance in the league is so absolute that the entire season comes down to these couple of matches in in April. Yeah. And last year they come up against the Real Madrid, who Real Madrid team who really smashed them um, in a in a very convincing way. I mean, Guardiola has spoken about that a lot since. You know, he said this was the biggest cock-up of his career, let's say. But here we are again, you know, this can't be far off. And you wonder, it's the kind of result that makes you wonder, if they don't beat Porto, if they don't go through this tie, I could see him, I could see this being his last season there. You know, I really could see that being the case. Because of the, the way that he reacts to defeat is not... He it's not uh, he, he he doesn't have that ability to sort of shrug off a defeat in the way that Carlo Ancelotti can. He's like, yeah, you know, I've lost a lot of matches. This is another one. Not many managers, not many managers have the type of is it equanimity that that's exactly what Carlo, Carlo Ancelotti, Ancelotti has. has. He's amazing, it, yeah. I, and it's incredible. He can shrug off victories. He can shrug off defeats. He can, we're making it as though he's just a, a sort of a yes man, and he's, there's more substance to him than that. But he knows how to get on with these guys. Guardiola is just a different kettle of fish. Well, it's it's sometimes. I mean, I've I've had this argument with uh, Miguel Delaney, who has a, a view that Carlo Ancelotti is not really a top coach, despite his Rapid three success. Champions League titles. <laughs> um, I mean, the logic there would be: first of all, when he when he has won the Champions League, it's always been with you know when a big spending team. You know, AC Milan in this case, although, you know, I'm not sure if AC Milan really fitted that bill when he won it with them uh, in 2003 and 2007. I don't think they were the richest team in Italy, never mind the comp- never mind the Champions League. Um, but, you know, and then Real Madrid, he wins it. But, he, you know, he's always managed kind of big, big clubs in the league. Milan, Chelsea, uh, Paris Saint-Germain, Barcelona. But his record in terms of, or Real Madrid, I should say, rather than Barcelona, his record in terms of winning titles is not great. Mm. Um, and that if he was a, if he was this kind of a, a, you know a real obsessive like Mourinho or Guardiola or one of these kind of real super Ferguson you know um, he he would have a better record in the league. Uh, I just think you know you know I think sometimes okay you, sometimes you don't win the league. Last season Real Madrid they they made a they made a mess of it. Yeah, not, there's no doubt about it. They won the Champions League though. Come on. You know, this got that's it's not as though that the success is all just happened because he's managing a rich club and the failures are an indictment of him as a as a manager. Yeah. I think the success is either you know both have to go in the credit or both have to you know both have to go in the both have to be counted. Um I do think that he has a good perspective on life. Maybe um I don't know, he's just temperamentally different from, from somebody like Guardiola. Guardiola, when he loses, really, uh, I'm not going to say melts down, that would be too much, but he really does take it to heart, and I think he really starts getting, when the criticism will start coming, as it inevitably will after this defeat, and if they get knocked out, it'll be on a whole new level. He reacts really badly. Oh, to yeah, that. but you're, he's like that when he's winning as well. Yeah. You, know, you see press conferences done after a win, particularly in those days. Maybe it's unfair. It was a particular time of his life, and Jose Mourinho was mentally trying to break him down. But it just looked like this is a guy who lives this too much. 
yeah. as some of the top managers do. And uh, and you know that's that's part of what makes him a great manager. Um, but you know he he does struggle to deal with these situations. So we'll talk a bit more yep. about that, and also the the news that Jurgen Klopp, um, which was did, did seem to be the big news uh, until this Bayern defeat. But Jurgen Klopp uh, has announced that he's going to leave. Bristol Dortmund in the summer and that and so suddenly you've got all these clubs going for him. well clubs are, are maybe going to be going for him now Manchester City have, have evidently briefed that they're not interested in signing Jurgen Klopp because there's a few articles across the papers to that um, effect that doesn't mean that they're not that doesn't mean that they won't be interested in signing him but it, it is now I, I have to say that I think that if they did go for him it would show that it would be a puzzling move for me because Chiki Begirstein, I think as we've already spoken about this, the Manchester City uh, technical director, it would be a surprise for me if he thought that Jurgen Klopp would, would be the next manager of Manchester City. But that's not to say, I mean, that they won't go for him. I think it would be inconsistent. Uh, but maybe Chiki Begirstein himself won't be around. Or maybe Chiki Begirstein himself doesn't really have that much of a... He's not so much of a consistent philosophy guy. He's more of a who's the biggest name we can hire guy. See, the whole point of his job, I thought, was to be the consistent philosophy guy, though. Mm. And, and people just worked under him to his vision, essentially. Yes, that's supposed that's to the plan. Have been it, yeah. But that may not necessarily be how it works out in practice. Well, so. we're going to get into Champions League with our two guests a little bit later. But it's a more serious story. Can I want to take you to or allow you to take us into this? Is the Bradford Stadium fire and the book that's been written by? A guy who was a young lad at that stage, uh, was at that game, survived it, but unfortunately lost. Absolutely, his, his own story is just horrific before you get onto the sort of allegations that he's making. He lost four family members from across three different generations on that day. Yeah, um, he was 12. Uh, his brother was 11. His father was 34. His uncle, 32. And his grandfather was 63. They were all there at Bradford that day. Uh, and he was the only one who escaped the fire. Uh, has, he's now written a book, and this uh, has been a big story uh, over the last 24 hours in the Guardian, um, who have uh, who have been kind of who brought a couple of extracts. So that's what, what we're going to do here is just mention a couple of the things that are in these um, that are in these extracts. Yeah. Uh, the book itself is called 56: The Story of the Bradford Fire by Martin Fletcher. So what he essentially has revealed is that the chairman of uh, Bradford City, Stafford Hegenbotham, who's now dead, he died in the 1990s, had before this fire uh, been linked to, had owned uh, businesses or been linked to businesses in which there were eight separate fires, eight, eight, eight separate fires, eight insurance claims before this big fire at Bradford City. This is staggering stuff. So he explains, I knew the scale of this task. I'd have to get to the British Library newspaper's archive for 9 a.m. each morning, fill in the sifts for the maximum number of items I could order, usually four bound volumes of the Bradford Telegraph and Argus, dating from January 1965 onwards, the year Stafford Hagenbotham became involved with Bradford City, and sat at a desk scanning each article until I'd covered 20 years' worth of newspapers. The process took two months, during which time I discovered there was a pattern to Stafford Hagenbotham's fires. In a nutshell, they all spread incredibly quickly, produced an unbelievable amount of toxic smoke and devastation, and they all caught the firefighters unawares. But even more staggering was the sheer number of them. So he starts going through. He's, so I read how on Sunday afternoon, 21st May 1967, fire engulfed a three-story factory in its two-story loading bay as a 200-foot pile of toxic smoke temporarily overcame two firemen at Cutler Heights Lane near Bradford City Centre. Fifty firemen in all deploying 14 jets, eight pumps, and a turntable were needed to bring it under control. Sunday afternoon, a fire breaks out, you know. Um, at a time when the average national UK house price was 3700 the fire cost £25,000 worth of damage with a stock loss of 10000 the equivalent in, in terms of housing price inflation of £1.6 million and 600000 today. Then on Good Friday, Good Friday 1968, again, a kind of a holiday fire, you know what I mean? <laughs> Uh, an awfully black overtime staff at Tebro Toys looked out of their windows an awfully black pall of smoke drifted towards their premises from a three story factory um, a fire going like a bomb also occupied by Tebro Toys and the Argus State Genofoam rubber manufacturers whose managing director is Mr. Stafford Hagenbotham the Bradford City chairman again and again um, you see this pattern um, you know April 1968 or May 1967, April 1968, August 1970, December 1971, uh, November 1977, August 1977, 
December 1977. He also claims that the that the chairman was under a lot of financial stress in the days leading up to the Bradford fire. Now he stops short of I guess he stops short of making a full out accusation about the about the Bradford fire and the cause of it being started or it starting. But he does say that there are a lot of coincidences there. Essentially, that's that's yeah. what he puts out there really in this are book. A lot of now, the guy who took there was a coincidences—you don't have lots of coincidences together. That's the thing about coincidences; they're quite rare. He mentions that at some point. You know, you, so many coincidences in a row is, is pretty amazing. Could anyone be as unlucky as Stafford Hagenbotham? Is this is 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 a quote from? Um, his book. The judge who led the inquiry uh, has said that this is all nonsense essentially, that it, it was a very quick inquiry convened at that time and it came to a very clear decision that this was started. A match or a cigarette. A match or a cigarette something like that apparently was dropped under the stand the, there was a load of debris and litter that had been built up over 20 years underneath that stand caught fire, the thing went on fire. Now at the very minimum and this has been said before there it it was a fire hazard. I mean, this the, there was this debris built up, and that should have been gone. And apparently, the chairman had been warned on a number of occasions to to get rid of all that. So, regardless of any uh, of any of the new allegations, some of that stuff, um, some of that stuff was already there. But yeah, Popwell says this is Sir Oliver Popwell. He's now eighty seven. He remains convinced that the fire was undoubtedly started by by accident. And he says, look. Uh, the any claims about in, insurance payers etc are not relevant in this case because that stand was due for demolition anyway so there wouldn't have been an insurance payout so that's just to give the other side of things the chairman himself mm. has, has since passed away yeah uh, I mean this guy Popplewell um, is, is is hardly going to say you know the, he, he is going to say this this is his this is obviously what he's going to I suppose say. he doesn't have to say anything, is the other point. Yeah, he, he's 87 he, years of age, he might say. year old judge, you know, he's called up for a comment on, uh, you know, he's probably, he's probably going to talk. He says, uh, um, it was about as simple a finding of fact as anything I've ever been involved in. He said, I wouldn't say it was cut and dried, but it was about as simple as finding fact as anything I've ever been involved in. There was no reason to make any more inquiries than we did. I mean, what what's amazing is that this chairman's, this chairman's history of these big fires has not been noted before you know this is Martin Fletcher himself I kind of find it incredible that this wasn't kind of public. I mean it is a remarkable string of coincidences um, and if that had been known if that all the previous fires had been known well, about the at the thing, time buddy, of the it, inquiry that's what an inquiry should be trying to uncover you would have thought that inquiry that that becomes that story becomes very different I think in, in, in the context of this information you know I mean if that information had been known at the time that would have certainly been a that would have been a big, you know. He, he's pointing out all the insurance claims that that uh, the insurance money that he made out of these fires, these huge fires, which shouldn't he burst up in his businesses? Yeah, Martin Fletcher is the person, is the author. Uh, Fifty six, the story of the Bradford Fire is a book. I'd say we'll be reading over the next while. Yeah, today. I, I should mention also that that um, Judge Popplewell, uh, and this was noted by uh, the Guardian uh, newspaper uh, in twenty eleven. Uh, he wrote a letter to the Times saying. The citizens of Bradford behaved with great dignity and great courage. This wasn't that the, you know he's he's referring to the, the the behavior of the citizens of Bradford after the, in the aftermath of this fire. They did not harbor conspiracy theories. They did not seek endless further inquiries. This is he's 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 talking about the Hillsborough campaigners here. Right. He's saying that the Bradford citizens of Bradford buried their dead, comforted the bereaved, and succored the injured. They organized a sensible compensation scheme. They moved on. Is there perhaps a lesson there for the Hillsborough campaigners? These are the Hillsborough. When, when did he say this? Twenty eleven. These are the Hillsborough. Wow. Cam- these are the Hillsborough campaigners. I mean, there is a an inquest. The, the Hillsborough kind of inquest is ongoing in Warrington. But you know, in twenty eleven, Popwell was saying, you know, look at these guys. They didn't harbor yeah. conspiracy theories. You know, conspiracy theories. We've seen the <laughs> Duckenfield, the, the policeman from uh, from Hillsborough, the the in, policeman who was in charge of Hillsborough just in the last couple of weeks. You know, making a statement to the court that he froze, you know, kind of accepting that it was his fault. He froze. This is, these are the things that he said. I mean, the man who who seems haunted, you know, by what he's done, but definitely it wasn't the conspiracy theory. You know, it was a real thing. Um, Papa Well evidently had no time for that, and he has no time for this either. All right, just a quick word on John Delaney again. And I say quick because he only gave a quick word to reporters <laughs> yesterday at an Irish Sports Council gig. What was it, four minutes or 45 seconds or something? Four minutes, 45 seconds. We'll cut the interview now.
but John Delaney uh, was at a gig, the Sports Council, uh, 7.4 million euros in funding f- uh, to be split between the GAA, the IRFU, and the FAI. So the three um, uh, heads of the sporting bodies were all there. Park Duffy of the GAA, mm-hmm. Director General. Philip Brown, Chief Executive of IRFU. And John Delaney, Chief Executive of FAI. And Philip Brown and Park Duffy are, are being asked questions about a range of stuff to do with their sports, which they're only too happy to answer. Why wouldn't they? You know, they're the heads of these sporting bodies. They love nothing more than to talk about their sport. In the case of John Delaney, however, he would not talk about anything other than the Sports Council funding. He would not address any other issues in our football apart from that. However, he did say he would be available to speak on May 21st at the FAI AGM launch. Ooh. Yeah, that's in Sligo or Leitrim, uh, May 21st. That would be a break from recent tradition because usually the journalists don't get to grill him too hard at that. It would be a break from recent tradition. So let's wait and see what <laughs> what happens there. But he's, he's, uh, he talked a little bit about Abbottstown uh, and stuff. This is the, Ab- the, Ab- the Abbottstown uh, campus. Uh, is the age of austerity finally over for Irish football? John Lane, he says, uh, we continue to put money in all the time, to be honest with you. Uh, we found clever ways of doing it. The Abbottstown Council campus is going to be open in May or June. Absolutely. There are six pitches there, floodlights on three of them, a goalkeeping area, fencing, dressing rooms, coaching centre, education centre. Um, no on-site accommodation, though, it's noted by a journalist. Um, but Delaney said Abbottstown would be the training base for Martin O'Neill's senior squad. Oh, well, yeah, I think come the autumn it will, definitely. Does that mean vacating Ireland's current training pitches at, at Gannon Park, he's asked? I wouldn't go as absolute as that yet. So Being cagey on uh, this stuff. Leave it at this, and we'll cut now. That's the interview after 4 minutes, 45 seconds. Why would we build an elite academy and not use it for our senior international players? So that's a yes, it's put to Johnny. Up to you to interpret that now. Uh, so <laughs> I guess it, it will be the training centre. It won't be. The, I mean, he says it will be the training centre, but not necessarily that they won't necessarily be abandoning the other one. I don't know. We'll have to wait several weeks. For these searing interviews that are going to take place all around the AGM of the FAI. That's the end of Kennerly's report on sport. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Bakery, ooh, got involved with a logistics company in Waterford, partly involved with a furniture shop in Adlone. We leased the pub in, in Tralee. John Delaney could run anything. Ah, OK. Yeah, well, when he comes up, then give me a shout. Well, yeah, I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow, too. Don't forget that. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Richie Sadler, how are you? How are you, lads? You well? We're, good. we're pretty good, yeah. Good uh, better than David Louise is feeling this morning. We did an, almost an entire podcast on nutmegs a few weeks back, if you remember Leo Messi embarrassing a bunch of Man City players. Oh, yeah. Reckon Louise is feeling like, like a bit of a dick this morning? He, he, he probably should be. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that, that, that goal. I mean, it's, but first of all, but it, like, that was brilliant skill from Suarez. Like, it wasn't like Louise's legs were... There was a huge target area there to aim at. It, it, it was brilliant from Suarez. Um, his finish was spectacular. It was awesome from him. But it, it, it's amazing that someone in that that caliber player. I know he, he he's regularly criticised and he's often the target of a lot of abuse and justifiably so. But to to defend so poorly and even his reaction when the ball went through his legs, he kind of if you watch it, he kind of did this little skip or this little hop turned around and, and walked in the direction of the goal. Like, there was no reaction. There was no response. So, yeah, I, I'd say he would be feeling pretty sheepish this morning. Suarez, uh, I just saw in passing, said that, oh, I only nutmegged him because I had to, as in it was the the option, which I'm, I'm sure is probably true. It's an instinctual thing, but I would have thought it would still give him quite a lot of enjoyment. It should do, <laughs> Nutmeg yeah. a guy Because I remember, I mean, that chat we had a while ago about, about Messi doing it. Like, it. It's not always the case that a nutmeg is done to... To demean or embarrass yeah. your opponent. Sometimes it's just the, the the most obvious thing to do in the scenario. So, well, that's the best way of getting around the player. It was last night, but it was. I don't know what the hell Luis was doing. Yeah, like often you can you can look at a defender and you can like make some kind of a case as to why he changed his position or why he made a certain decision. But last night, to to do that to that player like to Suarez it's just I really enjoy I have, yeah go on I sorry. have seen him do that though to a lot of Suarez, defenders top, mm. top I mean, he's brilliant at it like it's, it's kind of one of his one of his special skills I mean I think, I think he did it three times in half an hour to John Terry once do you remember that it was a match at Anfield a few years back I think it was 4-1 four, four or something against Liverpool it was just after they lost the FA Cup final to Chelsea 
So the Chelsea players were just sort of, yeah, whatever. And uh, and he literally left, did it to John Terry three times in the first half. It was it was hilarious. Mm. But I mean, you know, I think getting nutmeg by Luis Suarez is. I keep and I keep ended up defending David Luiz. Yeah, so do I. Because I was about to say I really enjoy David Luiz as a footballer, as a human being. He's just uh, okay. He's got his flaws, but when you're watching a match, you're looking for people to to stamp a bit of personality in the game. You finish a match and you're thinking, who was out? Who who was good out there? Who was noticeable out there? And for everything about David David Luiz, from the way he comports himself to the way he actually plays the game, I I really like him. I don't know if I'd like him being the centre half in my team if. I had all the money in the world to spend. But there was this big sort of joke when he went in the summer, oh, I can't believe Paris Saint-Germain paid all that money for him. I mean, it's probably not the day to sit here and defend David Luiz. Yeah. Look, like it, it would have been Luis Suarez not making John Terry last night if it hadn't been for David Luiz knocking Chelsea out in the previous round. Mm. I mean, he was the reason that Paris Saint-Germain actually got this far. And he was playing with an injury uh, because he's such a hero. Yeah. Mm. So... You know, while people might point to some of the flaws in that performance last night, I'm still not prepared to. Uh, <laughs> I'm still not prepared to concede that David Luiz is useless, fundamentally a liability. It's embarrassing. I, I just as we're talking here, I, it happened to me once when when you when you play. I don't know if it's the same case now, but if you're in the Irish under twenty ones in the build up to your fixture, the senior team usually play the same week. There used to be. Uh, a friendly so the under 21s would line out in the same setup as the seniors opponents and you play against each other and we were playing the match and I think that the, the, I was with the 21s at the time and the seniors started the game and the ball was played out to the fullback who was Dennis Irwin at the time and I went turn out to close him down and I did exactly what Louise did last night I just kind of went to kind of lunge forward as if to get the ball and just put the ball through my legs this is in the first six seconds of the game and then all the senior lads are like and I kind of stand there going I would like to die right now I really like that it was Dennis Irwin that did it to you not a guy who I think is given to showboating but he obviously maybe felt I assume, he had no option yeah well I assume no I, I, I probably gave him quite a big target <laughs> it was my defending did you do skills. that thing where you you uh you kind of go up to Erwin and sort of whisper menacingly in his ear that if he if he tries that again, you'll break his legs. And like you, you get that one for free. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Once more, you get my elbow. The uh, flip side of this is how amazing Suarez was last night. He was brilliant, brilliant against Man City. How impressed were you? I was brilliant. Like he, he was, like he, even the finish, the finish for a second goal. Oh, like it was, like just pinpoint where the ball went in. It, it, it was it was unsavable. And and his 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 first goal likewise. But. Um, like if he plays that way, and if you get the other two up front playing the way they can as well, like would they be favourites now? Well, this is something myself and Simon were talking about before we came on here. Is it is it as simple as if those three boys play to their potential, you can't actually beat Barcelona? I I, I think they're good enough that if the three of them, I mean Messi on his own, if Messi is outstanding. And, and and his level of outstanding it far exceeds everyone else's. It, it, he's you're not going to be able to defend against him. You won't be able to stop him. Add into that then, if Neymar and Suarez are doing what they can do, even if you would say Barcelona, if you could look at maybe weaknesses, comparative weaknesses in their defence, you say well maybe they might give you a goal, maybe two goals over two legs. You'd absolutely back those three forwards to get more than two goals over two legs. So you, I, I think they're so strong. That if they're at their absolute best, Barcelona win matches yeah. with them playing that way. It's I mean it's quite interesting because of the um, fact that the manager is almost a kind of irrelevance, like a mascot for the Barcelona team. Um, well, certainly since the altercation with Messi earlier in the season, it was seen that it's just I mean Messi so much power there. and there was yeah. a, Messi refused to be substituted as well um, in one one of the games. You know this like footage of Enrique, hey Leo, you know. Edge, and he's like, uh, no, Messi's just walking away from him. Sort of, well, I know that feeling, Ken. I remember, I remember I told, told the story of trying to haul Noel King off a charity game that I was <laughs> oh, yeah. on the sideline for a while back. Kinger wasn't pretending not to hear all the, the canny old tricks that he's built up over a lifetime of football. Yeah, how did you as a coach deal with that? Just gave up. <laughs> no, I took. I, I took That's him, what Luis Enrique did. I took him off at half time. Actually, did yeah. you give him a dressing down for his? Yeah, I him massive, disrespect. massive dressing down delivered by me to Noel King. No, I, 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 I felt I'm more of a collegiate manager. You know, I'm. I was one of the lads in this in this particular game. That oh, was, like Steve like, McLaren. Yeah, Kinger. Come on, Kinger. Using you, you nicknames. Know. Yeah. Who else did you have in your team? Was it? I was a good side. Nicky, uh, Nicky Byrne or no? Uh, Jason Sherlock was on there. A lot, a lot of Alan Cawley. Oh uh, yeah, a yeah. lot of. 
people with League of Ireland experience. Uh, we were playing against a Love Hate team. I've, oh, told, yeah. I've told all of this before. Yeah. Uh, 2 1 victory over Love Hate. Probably should have beaten them by more considering we were packed full of uh, League of Ireland League players. Of Ireland talent, yeah. But uh, maybe they weren't as motivated as they, as they always are. That's, yeah. Anyway. That's down to the manager. That it could be down to the manager again. I, gotta, I don't know what I did. But ultimately, um, that victory it goes down. It's, it, the credit goes to your players, though. Yeah. You didn't really have a lot to do with it. And it's like the same with Luis Enrique. Um, even at the highest level in the Champions League, it appears as though really um, it's all about the uh, it's all about the players. Richie, you asked that question before, didn't you? Of can't think of his name. Did you, you asked him, "Is it fair to say that anyone could have managed that team at that time?" Oh, Heng Tenkata, exactly. Yeah. Remember the response? And it was you Barcelona. Got? Yeah, yeah. Well, remember. So is, is that's the response I got was. No, of course not. No, of course not. Yeah, well, sorry, slightly said, aggressive, yeah. slightly completely dismissed you. Uh, lofty yeah. Dutch football man. Yeah, as if what an imbecile. But I did I tell like, him that basically he didn't have any job to do there. Uh, yeah, was, yeah, just a matter of uh, yeah. So that's the, the, yeah, that's the, the same thing here. Like we, sometimes we we sit back and say, well, players of such talent that it's just a question of getting out of their way. We had this chat probably in relation to Messi and Argentina in the World Cup, and about uh, Sabella's role there. To say, just get out of the way and just let him get on and play. It's probably too simplistic to say that of club football at Champions League elite level, that you simply just put your best players out on the pitch and get them go, to go and play. But yeah, he does have a questionable level of authority on the dressing room given what's happened in the recent past. Mm. You can certainly say that. Yeah, but it doesn't matter if you've got players like this who are kind of self-starting, so, you know, the geniuses, uh, Suarez and uh, Messi and Neymar. Um, and it's, I mean, to see how, kind of, I mean, Suarez just looks so, it's like, this is what I've been playing for my whole career. I finally arrived at this mm. point, you know, I'm playing for, I'm playing in the best competition for one of the best teams with the best player in the world. And he just seems to be, uh, uh, you know, right, right at the top of his game. And it's quite a contrast when you see this kind of sparkiness of those three players and how they're all, they seem to be improving each other you know there doesn't seem to be any of these issues with well hang on you know I'd like to be in the middle and you you know you're kind of impinging on my territory it doesn't seem to work that way at all which is quite a contrast with the actual European champions Real Madrid who uh, against Atletico okay played okay played a little bit of football in the first half but actually looked quite ordinary from us again there's nothing really coming from from Ronaldo from and as for Gareth Bale I don't know what you made of this performance Richie Bale's, I, I've seen them a good few times this season now, Madrid, and and Bale has played similarly in in all the games I've seen. He, you just, when I look at him, I, I kind of just wishing him to do a bit better. You're kind of willing him on, and and he just always has kind of been disappointing. Mm-hmm. Certainly from the, the the what we know he can do and what he did at times with Tottenham, but he does look as if it's just not happening for him there. Um, and we know obviously the media and the fans are giving him a little bit of stick but in games it just looks a little bit out of place at times yeah. it's, I, I think they don't A they don't pass him the ball yeah he li- he's like he's like the kind of like an odd one out like he doesn't mm. he doesn't fit there I think his whole thing I mean I remember I, I love Gareth Bale because I actually got to watch him watch him a lot um, at White Hart Lane you know seeing him uh, play for Tottenham and he's actually unbelievable, like such a spectacular player to watch. I've never seen anything like it. But but when I when I think of Bale, what, I, what I'm thinking of is these runs down the yeah. side, you know, runs off the pitch. He did it in the cup final for Real Madrid, um, that sort of curving run. That I mean, it's so spectacular to see that. But in order to play that way, you've got to play for a team that sometimes... Uh, you've got to sometimes get the ball in your own half. Mm. With, with Real Madrid, he's usually kind of up front... Or you know he's, he's he plays as a winger or as a as a you know as, as a forward player. They've usually got the ball, and when he gets the ball, he's he's usually not moving forward onto it. You know what I mean? It's a different kind of a setup. There's no space for him to run into, and it's it's a it's a weird thing that one of the paciest players in the world looks kind of slow and cumbersome in that Real Madrid team because whenever he's getting the ball, he's almost sort of. He's 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 just moving. He's almost at a standstill. You know yeah. what I mean? It's I think he's in the wrong team essentially. Yeah, there's not much he can do about that now. I mean, he's, is he just going to see out the season? And I think he'd be gone. To be honest, they'd be looking at him going, "Well, we can yeah. we can get a, a more suited player than this." And, and I think he would still be a brilliant player in the in the Premier League. But it's not strange that Real Madrid knew what his 
strengths were when they signed him and would have uh, there were a lot of questions when they signed him because people thought well he's a little bit like Ronaldo in ways but mm. clearly not quite as good and will not be given a central role in the team and yet they never found a way to work him in is that just a case of this being a very typical Real Madrid type signing where the president decides this guy is a really big name in British football at the moment let's take him over here I, think, I think so I mean Real Madrid have, have got rid of loads of brilliant players I mean look at you know Iron Robin Iron Robin has been one of the best players in Europe for the last six or seven years. So six years, I think it is, since Real Madrid sold him. He's been consistently one of the best players in Europe in that time. Didn't work at Real Madrid. Yeah. That doesn't mean that he's not a brilliant player. Raheem Sterling, Richie has featured heavily enough in the last couple of mm. weeks of our conversations. This time it's because of this story that emerged over the weekend about him uh, the, and the nitrous oxide, which I think emerged during the game at the weekend? I think it was just after he scored. Just he scored, he scored a very good goal against Newcastle and almost uh, very shortly afterwards this video came out. I mean, the Sun were the ones with the video, you know, so evidently they bought it from whoever filmed it or whoever acquired it. From a close personal friend of Sterling. <laughs> who close. are these friends? Yeah, these for, uh, Rooney was the other one who's... Yeah. Uh, his video of him getting knocked out or not emerges. I don't know. Maybe they have to choose their friends a little more wisely, but what's your take on that story? I think the reaction was over the top, as is custom nowadays with anything that, that a footballer does in his life away from the field. Brendan Rodgers' quotes were stood out as well. I think he, he, he was quite critical and said he, he would expect his players to be, I think, super professional was the term he used. Um, and I think today I think he's going he's gonna to have a meeting with him or possibly punish him. Um, but... What are we talking about here? Like we're talking about a substance which is legal. So he, he he didn't he didn't do anything illegal. He didn't do anything wrong. And and we're used to players going out and having a pint at the weekend. We all know of players who smoke cigarettes, and there is never the reaction at all for for a, a photograph of a player with a pint in his hand as there was. To this and Kyle Walker was, you know, was caught doing this before as well, smoking whatever this stuff is, and there was a big outrage. Like it's it's relatively harmless stuff, didn't break any rules, and again the the, the role model thing came up again. That the, the deputy of the PFA, Bobby Barnes, came out and said that he said, in one hand he said, listen, this is a young kid. We've all done things in our late teens and early twenties which we wouldn't do again. Cut the fella some slack, but also use the thing. You know, it's disappointing because players are role models. I think that's garbage in this context. It's it's a harmless thing, it's a nothing thing, and I just think behind it all is this this kind of I don't know what it, I don't know how to describe, it, but this attitude that players that, that that fans or clubs should have more control over the private lives of players because they earn so much, or because some players would like their job, therefore they should decide how they should spend their private. Well, lives. so surely it is true though that a footballer has to behave a little bit differently to the rest of us wandering around doing our own thing. They, they are recognisable figures, they do, and you you said that there's not a big deal made about cigarettes and booze. I think there is. Anytime Jack Wilshere, for example, has been caught with a cigarette, it becomes a massive big story as well. So I don't know if Raheem Sterling's being singled out necessarily in this case. Do you not? Well, not really, no. I think if that video had emerged, maybe the reasons behind that video emerging are, again, we, have, we don't know exactly yeah. how that was leaked or whatever. I'd, I'd like to know that, why it is that somebody decided that this should become public. But once it became public, I think that'd be a big story if it was an Arsenal player. Certainly, if it was a player who had been, uh, you know, smoking these shisha pipes before, and who there were, who who there were question marks. But what they actually are, like, can, can, the globe, can do you have the details of what actually the the, the substance is made up of, and what the medical dangers involved? What are? the? Do you mean lavinias or yeah, shisha pipe? Both. Well, lavinias is, is nitrous oxide. It's just a, um, is like a was the first. Uh, anesthetic that was discovered uh, back in the 1840s. Um, it, it is not a very good anesthetic. You can still get it though, and I think they still give it to you in some in dentists sometimes. You know, it's like um, the guy who uh, who discovered it or who first tried to demonstrate it to to a bunch of students. It didn't work. Mm-hmm. He was like, you know, observe now the wonderful effects of my pain killing wonder. Uh, drug, so gave the gas to the patient, then got his pliers started ripping their teeth, and the patient is screaming. Ah! So everyone was saying, "Oh, this is this is rubbish," you know. Caused the eventually um, the the poor doctor who 
who was pushing the the invention, ended up uh, essentially going mad. He uh, had a nervous breakdown. It wasn't because of laughing gas. He became addicted to chloroform, which is a much better uh, anesthetic, became available at the same time. And eventually, uh, well, he came to a, a messy end. Where were we again? We're just wondering about how da- <laughs> how dangerous it's not. Dang- it's not be. dangerous. It's it's a it's like a harmless anesthetic. I mean, you know, you read like say the day when the Daily Mail reports this. The interesting, I mean, the, the media coverage of this is is interesting in a way. Like the Daily Mail, for instance, when they were talking about another footballer who was done for nitrous oxide. Uh, done for nitrous oxide. Yeah. He's not done for anything because it's not it's not illegal. When I say done for nitrous oxide, what I mean is pictures of him inhaling it or a video of him going, oh, you know, uh, sort of experiencing the temporary high associated with our, you know, leaked or bought by the media. So Daniel May is like, the drug known as hippie crack. You know, okay, hippie crack, right? This is not like, this is not remotely comparable to crack. It's like something that you inhale gives you a brief, like, change of mental state and then it's then it's gone and there's no harm done. Is the issue not that he passed out or was reported to have passed out uh, unconscious? Well, I mean, the, which the is drug a, is like an, uh, is an, so like know, has, has anaesthetic properties. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, not, he's taking it for a particular reason. Uh, and he's not taking it to for a laugh. Brain, exactly, I mean, yeah. that's the, you know, the name. It's like, uh, so you're, you're talking about being harmless, but if, it, if, it's not gonna guy, if it's not going to guy out, uh, you know. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, it is... You know, does, you, does, you, it yeah. lack, does it show a sign that he, he lacks professionalism or super super professionalism, to use Brendan Rodgers' phrase? Yeah, I'd say most managers wouldn't want their, their star players to be caught in those situations. And do you think a manager can be caught in those situations, even if the phrases around this... I assume he did this in private somewhere. Yeah. With his mates. And like he, he, he hasn't been leading a campaign encouraging kids of today to go out and do it he hasn't been strolling down the street or showing up at games doing it and he hasn't been making any public comment in any way as far as I'm aware it's not so much promoting the- this he did this in the privacy uh, uh, let's call it let's assume for a moment he has some aspect some element of a private life mm. or an entitlement to that well then he did this in that domain of his life and repeat again it's not outlawed or banned or illegal nobody anywhere he's not broken any rules so I just think it's totally at odds what he did compared to the reaction. But this is yeah, and this is the key here. I'm I'm not. I, I agree with you regarding the role model thing. It's completely overplayed that every step a player has to take is he has to think what will the children do? Will they try to follow me and do the same things? But he should he he would presumably know that these sort of actions are going to provoke a massive media reaction. And maybe that's wrong. Maybe it's it's the media are the ones that should have the finger pointed at them. But he he would know if these things ever become public that his manager is going to get in a lot of... A lot of crap. He's going to get a lot of crap thrown at him for that and the club is going to get a lot... Whether that's right or wrong, it is going to happen. So is that... I, not- I don't... Yeah, I don't... I think we're at a stage now where no matter what you do, there will be reactions. Yeah. Someone somewhere in the world will post on Twitter their disgust or their outrage. I don't think the fact that something is going to get a response means that that's something should be avoided at all costs. You cannot do anything now without getting a response. I, w- I wonder what you could do without without provoking a response, literally. I mean, because the the thing about this, the, the reason this is a kind of a fairly new thing, because previously you would not have this, the video would not have existed. Right? He, may, he may have done it. People are always doing things in their private life. Um, imagine there was a video of everything and it was always online of everything. You know, I mean... People would run out of shock juice after a while. The shock glands would eventually be drained of their substance and shriveled into this dry state because people do a lot of weird stuff in their private life. Maybe you're just not meant to know about it, you know? Well, like, another example of that is the, the other issue that came up this week the Manchester City women's football. Oh, yeah, Tony Duggan. Tony Duggan. Like, that's a brilliant example of how something. A fairly innocuous act by somebody can cause outrage and disgust. In this case, just uh, for people who might not have been following it, she was out with a group of friends. They bump into Louis Van Hal and have a photo taken with him. She's in the photograph. Cue massive uproar among Manchester City supporters. How dare one of our players, male or female, be seen in a photograph with the enemy? Yeah. So, so what she actually did was she posed in a photo with the fo- with the with the manager of Manchester United. I think most football supporters, given the opportunity of getting a photo with a Premier League manager, certainly the Manchester United manager, would probably take that opportunity, no matter who they support. She got dogs abused for 24 hours. She was bullied. It was fairly disgusting stuff. 
And then somebody advised her, or she took it upon herself, to apologise, like she was in the wrong. Mm. Like, is, is that where all this, is that where we are now? Is that where, where you basically apologise if somebody somewhere is offended for what you did? And the tone of the apology as well, it does strike you as something where, where she's gotten a bit of advice. I'd like to apologise to all Manchester City fans for the error of judgement I made last night. And I appreciate the significance of my actions. I can yeah. assure everyone connected with Man City, I am proud to represent the club and wear the shirt. That sounds like somebody who's really done something incredible, committed, yeah. a, committed a crime. Yeah. And is having to do a full mea yeah. culpa on it, as opposed yeah. to somebody who's gotten a photo with a guy. So you, you yeah. asked a question a moment ago, shouldn't Sterling have realised that what he did would have put his manager in heat, that there would be a public response? Now, so we're just showing, there, there's a very up-to-date example of, of something that somebody did which caused a fairly heated public response. Public response is insane. Yeah, so therefore, do, do, we, do we modify our behaviour to protect the morons, the lowest of the, the, the low who are out there, who take to Twitter, who take to social media and, and, and think it's the right thing to abuse a girl for, for taking a photo and posting it online. It's slight difference they, in these two cases, though, because this Tony Duggan, I'd be fairly certain that a lot of these Man City fans who were abusing her online had never actually heard this person's name before. They see this as, oh, this so-and-so, yeah. and they start having a massive go at her. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong in this, but I feel like I'd have a bit more sympathy for somebody like that who hasn't been in the public eye before, doesn't, you know, representing the jersey, representing the club, fine, but she's not anywhere near a Raheem Sterling level of fame, so maybe it's more natural for her not to think quite as much about the consequences of what she's doing. But being, what she was doing shouldn't have had any consequences. Yeah, actually, yeah, that's, yeah, she's that's, just that's a person true. getting a picture with yeah. Lee Van Hal. Yeah. yeah, That's my thing. It's, oh, it's sorry, I, feel, I feel more sorry for her being on the end of a lot of abuse than, than Raheem Sterling, which it could be unfair because they're both human beings, yeah. I suppose. I, I absolutely, I, I, and I'd agree as well, because one is, is whether he, he likes it or not, or whether we think it's right or not, like he is in a, a world now where he is going to get scrutinised. Everything he does, fair enough, and, and Tony Duggan isn't. But to bring it back to what both people actually did, you're talking about, like, certainly Tony Duggan did nothing wrong. No one anywhere with half a right mind can describe what she did as wrong. You could argue that what Sterling did was maybe a little bit reckless, but it's nothing wrong with what he did. And, and, and the reaction to it, I don't know whether Brendan Rodgers today is going to fine him or, 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 or punish him. Do you see any uh, significance in the fact that, um, well, there is a coincidental thing, which is that I mentioned Berahino earlier. He's, he's the only other client of A.D. Ward, who's Sterling's agent. So both of these guys have now have it in common that they've been filmed taking nitrous oxide, which is, which is an unfortunate coincidence. But the fact that this stuff comes out, and it's not just the uh, nitrous oxide, but also the shisha stuff, you know, comes out just as he's, like, kind of been kicking up a fuss over his... Contract? Do you think that's significant in any way? Or is it just the fact that suddenly a video of Raheem Sterling misbehaving in some way is now a more valuable property to the newspaper, which is prepared to pay the you know <laughs> his the friend of Sterling to shop it in? Yeah, he's cer- there's certainly more value in stories like that because of his situation. Whether he, you, you kind of suggesting that this could be a, a tactic from someone somewhere. I mean, the video was in the sun, you know. You're what throwing mean? in a loaded question to yeah. Richie here, Ken, and you're you're hoping no, you're I'm hoping not, he'll grab it I, by the horns. I'm not suggesting that you know Liverpool FC colluded with the sun to put out a video. No, that would be controversial. No, that would, no, I'm not suggesting that. But I mean, it is, you know. I, I mean, I, I don't know why. I don't know. Is there any significance in the fact that it has to do? It's coming out after his after his recent uh, issues. I think from the newspaper's point of view, it's definitely more newsworthy. So they would go after a story like this with, with maybe greater vigour, given the timing or given the, the, the background. Whether it was... Whether, whether Liverpool had a role in it coming out or whether the agent had a role in it coming out, obviously we don't know. I'd be, <laughs> I'd be very surprised if either party or anyone involved in the negotiations would have any direct role in this coming out because I don't know how you would benefit. Richie... Ken's throwing bombs at you today. We appreciate it. Thanks very much for coming in. Cheers, lads. A flame hair, a flame hair, flame for truth, Mr. Ken Early. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Alan. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. 
Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. Sounds like you're with Richie on the uh, Raheem Sterling story, Ken. Bit of a storm on this one. Yeah, uh, he, he. I don't. I don't think it's a big deal. He's not doing anything that a lot of other people aren't doing. Oh, of course, yeah. The, the point is, that if, he's doing something people, if he's doing something illegal, maybe it will be. Uh, it will be different. I mean, you know, he's like a twenty-year-old footballer. He he probably. You know, he should have a, a more monkish. He should have the lifestyle of a fifty-year-old monk. He should have the he should have the discipline uh, and the, the the sort of the restrained and moderate uh, habits of a fifty-year-old monk. But realistically, it's Stephen Hunt obviously got hammered a little bit for his column from a while back in the Sunday Independent, where he talked about the travails of the modern footballer, how they have to rest, rest quite a lot. Yeah, but it seems like a lot of them don't just rest. Well, that is the discipline that you have to. A lot of them, it turns out, want to go out, like stay out late and have fun. And that's the way that it goes. I mean, um, I the, don't, the, the particular story, well, the particular issue in with Stephen Hunt, the people having Stephen Hunt at the time, was that he was saying that GA players mightn't be, you know, would, would not necessarily be able to hack it. And there was a specific story of him having to drive out to meet a friend who had flown over or something like this, and he had to drive and have a coffee and drive back, and this was interrupting his resting patterns. So, yeah, it, it, it was interesting stuff. And uh, yeah. We'll move it along because Raphael Honigstein is ready to talk to us about... Well, we want to talk about Jurgen Klopp, Raphael. Uh, this is why we called you up today. But in the meantime, and we'll talk about it. In the meantime, Bayern Munich beaten 3-1 last night by Porto. Has this sent shockwaves through football in Munich? Well, absolutely. Um, you always expect Bayern Munich to deliver and you don't expect them to make the sort of mistakes that uh, really were their own undoing uh, last night. I mean, three horrible mistakes at the back. Can't really explain them with any tactical problems or even the injuries that have, of course, hampered their uh, their performances. Um, these were inexcusable mistakes, and he won this, it was one of those mistakes too many. And you can just see, um, in, despite Bayern still having a good chance of going through, you can just see um, a scenario where next Tuesday they'll say, oh, well, well we won 2-1, but that just one goal too many just did for us. And they're under real pressure now. I mean, it's uh, it can't they can't really be any better than fifty fifty. I would say to go through at this stage. Uh, you said the mistakes are difficult to explain, but how did how did Guardiola explain this one? Because I can I can imagine um, obviously Guardiola is, is the guy who's brought in to bring Bayern Munich to the next level. They have played some otherworldly football at times, uh, but here they are with another heavy defeat in Europe and, and possibly poised to go out at an embarrassing stage. Yeah, well, I mean, he was being very philosophical and, of course, careful not to criticize the team too heavily because he still needs them on Tuesday to possibly come back for that. He said human, uh, humans make mistakes. These are the things that happen. Of course, um, they shouldn't happen because Bayern came into this game knowing that they're not quite at full strength, that they're not really able to dominate the game to the extent that they have been doing in the first half of the season. So the one thing you absolutely need to make sure is not to concede silly goals in the pack. And, of course, that's what they did. And within 11 minutes, they were 2-0 down. Um, Very hard, very hard to... um, Why they would, you know, make these kind of mistakes. The pressing game from Porto was cited in some quarters as, as being sort of unexpected for Bayern. But three quarters of the Bundesliga teams play like that and Bayern's big strength is the ability to play through that pressing through their technique and their, their position of play and it just didn't happen for them at all Yeah, I'd say almost the more worrying thing from Bayern's point of view isn't so much the fact that a couple of their players you know, Alonso and Dante made uh, defensive mistakes I mean, that can happen it's the lack of firepower I mean, the, the, they're 2-0 down from, from the 10th minute um, they know that they need to get back into this game. They need to score a couple of goals, and they end up losing three-one. You know that's not a question of, mis- of of individual errors. You know moments of of sloppiness. That's a, a team um, really failing to impose itself in the game. Bayern is supposed to be a better team than Porto. They they should not have lost that much three-one. Well, absolutely, and they didn't create any real chances throughout the game, which was uh, the second worry. But that that in a, in a way wasn't was almost expected. They haven't been able to play good football recently. They have no wits in the team. Uh, Robin is out. Ribery is out. Uh, Schweinsteiger is out. Goetz is having a very poor spell at the moment. And they have to rely on being almost a very basic side, trying to 
get the fullbacks to come forward and put crosses in. I mean, that's really the game plan. Or Thiago, um, you know, coming up with some magic behind the striker. So theirs is a football that's not very Guardiola-like at the moment. So the least they should have done is to, you know, give themselves a good chance to, um, you know, be in a position next week when possibly Ribéry and maybe even Schweinsteiger will be back and at home they'll, you know, they should have a bit more. But it was disappointing performance all around, certainly at the back, but also, as you said, going forward, it's not really the kind of footballer you expect from Bayern, even without all the injuries that they do have. I feel the biggest story in German football this week, uh, well, up until this point anyway, was Jurgen Klopp announcing he's going to leave at the end of the season. Now he says, it's not that I'm tired, I've not had contact with another club, but don't plan to take a sabbatical, uh, which is all a little bit uh, difficult to decipher, I guess. Why has he decided to leave Bayern, uh, Borussia Dortmund at the end of the season? Well, it hasn't come as a huge surprise. It was um, sort of uh, moving towards that kind of uh, solution or a dissolution, as it were, uh, of the relationship of the last few weeks. Uh, Dortmund still, of course, um, uh, were hurting from that decision, but in the end realized that there was really no, no other option. As far as Jürgen Klopp is concerned, I think he is genuine. I tend to, uh, to believe that he hasn't got anything immediately lined up. Uh, no one really knew about this. Uh, they've been able to keep it on the reps for at least a week or so, and apparently the in- decision internally was already being made. And it's only now, I think, that uh, one or two clubs who perhaps weren't in the market for, for a new manager or certainly weren't in the market for him, beginning to reassess their options. And, uh, of course, Manchester City is the one club that look most likely to be in need of a new manager. I think they're planning up until yesterday, was uh, maybe to give Patrick Vieira a chance. But now with Jurgen Klopp being available, you know, priorities might change again. Um, I think he'll be very careful making that next decision. And I think it wouldn't be beyond them to just wait and see what happens. Maybe next season, uh, stick around until November, December, when the first big managers come under pressure and then make a move that makes more sense from rather than jumping at the conclusion right now. One thing I don't quite follow, Rafael, is why he decided to announce this now. It's not as though Dortmund's season is over. They've still got a semi-final against uh, Bayern Munich um, in a couple of weeks uh, in the in the German Cup. There's still that to play for. Um, you know, league and, and Europe, not so much. But why tell everybody about this now? Why not just announce it at the end of the season? I mean, it's what Alex Ferguson did. I don't see why Jurgen Klopp needs to give everyone... Is it, is it literally just to flush out the, the, the next club? Is it a self-serving move by Klopp? You know, make sure everybody knows I'm available so that there's a job lined up for me when I finish here? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that could have been done behind the scenes more discreetly. Um, I, I think it's really down to Dortmund and their priorities and their needs. One point that Klopp made yesterday was... Um, they wanted to be in a position where uh, they're not surprised at the end of the season. And uh, also the players um, you know, need to know what's going on. There are one or two players who are very much in between two minds, whether they're staying or going. Dortmund themselves are not quite sure whether they should cash in on, on somebody like Hummels, who has had a terrible season, but he is the captain and, a, and the leader and a big important figure in the dressing room. So they need the new guy to come in and make these decisions. They need them to make the decisions now. They cannot be in a situation where they were completely blindsided by Goethe um, two years ago or um, get a move forced on them by Lewandowski. So that's really the reason why they want to get their house in order now. Now is the time when all the big moves tend to happen, certainly in German football, as far as transfers are concerned. So I think it was just being honest and quite astute uh, from the club as well as Klopp himself for his own reasons. To, to get that out of the way right now. He says that he is 0.0% tired. Um, do you think that's the case, Rafael? Do you think maybe he... I mean, how do you... Uh, where do you think he's, his career is at now? Is this a manager who has essentially been overwhelmed by the fundamental impossibility of his job? I mean, to, to keep up with a, with a club that's so much uh, richer, so much more powerful, that keeps taking your best players... Is a difficult job for any manager, uh, or is there also a, a sense in which maybe Klopp himself, his ideas um, have been figured out by other coaches? It's maybe things of, maybe he's not feeling tired himself, but maybe um, his approach to coaching has grown a little stale. 
Well, there's, there's a bit of all of that involved. I think fundamentally um, he wasn't doing an impossible job. I think he was doing a very possible job because Dortmund do not expect to be Bayern. They expect to keep growing, to keep qualifying for the Champions League and come second, third or fourth. They are tenth, uh, which shows you that something wasn't quite working anymore. And I think he and the club and the players realised that what they had for six good years for the, in the seventh year, for whatever reason, wasn't working anymore. And he made a very good point. You know, he said big changes had to happen next year. Uh, they even had to happen with or without me. Um, it's probably much easier for the club to make them happen without him because then they won't be always compared to the great Dortmund side of 2012 uh, and 11 who won all these titles and can perhaps start from a more neutral uh, perspective, which they'll have to do as a at best Europa League team or at worst a mid-table team without Euro- any European football. He needs, I think, a new new start. I think to be in charge for seven years at any club in modern football is 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 a huge achievement, but also tends to sort of fray at the edges of of a very demanding system that he imposed. And I think ultimately, if you want to nail it down to one reason, I think the kind of football that he played with young, hungry Dortmund players in 2008 who were 20, 21, 22, hadn't won anything at all. And then we're building up to this great team in 2011. I'm not sure you can play that same football with World Cup winners, with German champions, with people on huge contracts like Royce, like Hummels, etc., etc. So I think he needs to reassess his football and perhaps also modify his idea in the next club because the, the problems, if he goes to a bigger club, which we expect him to do, will be essentially the same. He has to make his football work for players who don't necessarily like to be told that they have to run for 90 minutes incessantly. All right, Raphael, brilliant stuff. Thanks a minute. Yes. That was interesting phraseology by Raphael there, Cam, when you asked him, put it to him that he was doing an impossible job. He was doing a very possible job, says Raphael, because the expectations weren't, it was a bonus when they competed with Bayern Munich, but those weren't actually the expectations of Jurgen Klopp, one of the more interesting characters in European football. Yes, um, I mean, I think it's a, it's a soul-destroying kind of a job. And the thing, the thing, it's a kind of a... It's a bit dramatic now, Owen. Um, the comparison with Prometheus, uh, the titan who was chained to a rock and had his liver eaten out every day by an eagle, uh, on it, torn from his body on, as punishment. Uh, but every day, every night it would grow back, and then the eagle would just come back and rip the liver out again. Horrible, horrible That's situation. More horrible fables I've ever heard. Can Jurgen Klopp's situation at uh, Brissy Dortmund be compared to that? His team keeps regenerating and then Bayern Munich comes along and rips out his liver. Can it, is it, re- it, it probably shouldn't even be put in such graphic terms. I mean, Jurgen Klopp is, you know, a, a high-income celebrity uh, living, uh, you know, doing a, a fun job in, uh, in, uh, in Western Germany. It's not, it's not like being chained to a rock and having your liver torn out. It's not that bad. And in fairness, he's made the decision himself here, Ken. Maybe more like the, uh, a member of the Yakuza, is it the Japanese mafia? Yeah. Who actually, if they've done something dishonorable, they just cut their own innards open yeah. and let it all spill out there. Which he hasn't had to do at any point. No one has required him to commit uh, you know, ritual self-disembowelment. Uh, so, look, you know, look on the bright side. His situation is a lot better than that. But it is very f- frustrating, I imagine, for any manager. You're trying to build a team. The point of the team is to try and beat, well, it's to try and win the title, you know, win, beat Bayern Munich. Um, but every so often they just come along and say, oh, yeah, we'll have good. So, yeah, we'll have Lewandowski. You know, it's just depressing. And it's not as though they're the only team taking his players. I mean, this has been a thing with with Dorvin Shaheen going to Madrid, uh, Kagawa going to Manchester United. Now, they have boomeranged back since, but seem to have lost a little something since then. Hummel's probably leaving. As um, uh, There comes a point maybe where you're saying, OK, I've done all I can here. I could keep doing it. I could keep being like a high-end Dario Grady. But maybe... It's, I think it's just difficult, especially when you get a season where you suddenly lose a lot like this season. Suddenly things, a little bit of poison starts to be introduced. Defeat is poisonous. Everybody is falling out with everybody. Everybody's getting a bit sick and tired of each other. So maybe it's just, uh, it's difficult, I think, to have that same infectious enthusiasm that Klopp made his trademark when actually you don't feel infectiously enthusiastic. You feel bitter, resentful, paranoid, 
uh, and you're actually infecting everybody else with that as okay, well. Okay, well, let's wrap this podcast up, Ken, before the poison and the bitterness starts yeah. pouring into it. Just talking, talking ourselves into a bad place there. <laughs> Thanks very much for uh, listening to us rubbing on here. You can check out our next podcast. It's going to feature Toulon against Leinster. We'll be looking ahead to that and asking Jerry Thorny and Shane Organ, is there... Just for one reason why Leinster can win this game because nobody seems to think that they've got a chance in hell of doing so. Follow us on Twitter at Second Captains, facebook.com forward slash Second Captains and you can check out secondcaptains.com. That's our website. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you too, Alan. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 